Hello, and welcome to this installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next and last episode this season, celebrating recent work by Marie Mayung O.K. Lee, is drawn from a panel brought together on April 17th, 2023, to discuss her recently published book, The Evening Hero. Toggling between the past and the present, Korea and America, The Evening Hero is a moving, darkly comic novel about a man looking back at his life and asking big questions about what is lost and what is gained when immigrants leave home for new shores. Marie Mayung O.K. Lee is the writer-in-residence at Columbia University's Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. She is an acclaimed Korean-American writer and author of the young adult novel Finding My Voice, thought to be one of the first contemporary-set Asian-American young adult novels. She is one of a handful of American journalists who have been granted a visa to North Korea since the Korean War. She was the first Fulbright scholar to Korea in creative writing and has received many honors for her work, including an O. Henry Honorable Mention, the Best Book Award from the Friends of American Writers, and a New York Foundation for the Arts Fiction Fellowship. Here is Marie Mayung O.K. Lee reading from her new novel. The Evening Hero took me actually 18 years to research and write, and it covers a lot of vectors, including private equities, subtle but devastating incursion into healthcare, immigration, forced migration, fathers and sons, the aftermath of colonialism and war. And there's also an abortion plot that has become inadvertently timely because Yongman, our Evening Hero, and his wife Yonghae were both OBGYNs in Korea, and they've immigrated to the U.S. actually to get an abortion for Yonghae, but they are in Birmingham, and they did not realize pre-Row how these restrictive state laws were going to affect them. So their son, Einstein, who is now a grown man and an OBGYN himself, is the result. It's hard to explain what a novel is about. So I'm just going to read a little bit. So I'm going to start in the beginning, which is a typical day for Youngman Kwok, who, as mentioned, is a Korean immigrant. He's an OBGYN in his 70s. He's worked in a rural community hospital for his whole career. He enjoys his work. What he doesn't realize is because of that private equity play, this is kind of his last day because a holding company has bought up all the small regional hospitals and plans to put them out of business to create a monopoly. Horse's breath. Youngman's office was strategically placed between the surgical suites and the labor and delivery rooms. You walk by the imaging room whose door had a sign that said, please do not smoke during your ultrasound. Then through a door with a sign that said maternity ward and push, push, push above its automatic opener. The heavy door kept the noise of the ambulances out, but Youngman was always imagining he heard sirens. Youngman waved to his secretary, Rose, whose half-size office was umbilically connected to his. She had left his white coat on its hanger behind the door, pressed and cleaned and sheathed in protective plastic. He had to deal with his shoes first. The unseasonable winter rain had left the physician's parking lot flooded, and he had picked his way across the archipelagos of dryish asphalt, stepped lightly into what he thought was a one-inch deep puddle, and been so shocked when his foot disappeared up to the ankle that he put his other foot down into a different mini lake. From his desk, he took out his package of emergency socks, crisp in their cellophane, and with the stuffer's 
drug price tag still on it from 1989. Both shoes were damp, so while he hid them under his desk to dry, he transferred his feet into his squishy white surgical clogs, even though it wasn't a surgery day. He checked the ER whiteboard. His longtime patient, Mrs. Mackey, had called him at home this morning, complaining of indigestion. She wasn't due for two more weeks, but she tended to deliver fast. Three children, each labor faster than the previous. So he told her to come in, better safe in the hospital than sorry, especially since recent cuts meant fewer ambulances were available. Of course, this would add to his workload. Normally, Maud, his nurse midwife, could do the workup and monitoring, but there'd been sporadic layoffs for months. It has seemed there was no more flesh to cut, but she had been a casualty of last week's Friday night massacre, along with Kate Javarina, the hospital's social worker. The private health management company Synergistic Action Network U.S. Health Systems had made the tantalizing promise to the board of trustees that Horses Breath General would be debt-free in a mere two to five years, and the hospital could retain its former stability if they gave Sanus free reign to do its magic. But all they'd seen so far was fewer staff, fewer supplies. Even basics like IV saline and Tylenol were troublingly in short supply. Telephone problems, which used to get fixed right away, languished for days. Also, their ER had been downgraded one trauma level, then another. The new sign at the entrance read, minor injury only, not 24 hour. For emergency, please dial 911. So Youngman still has a lot of life left in him. He wants to work and help people. And then Einstein, the OBGYN and Harvard Medical School graduate, has joined a bro-type startup at the Mall of America doing for-profit luxury hospital births for the same company that put his father's hospital out of business. And let me say, it's not a hospital, it's the hospital. And there's a more down-market retail scene within the mall called the mall-based retail outlets, otherwise known as Mbros. So he gets his father a gig job. The only problem is that young man thinks he is going to be administering vaccines and not depilating vaginas. Young man was given an address, a floor, a wing, a sector, a door number. He traversed the skyway to the mall and walked for what seemed like miles past Earring Pagoda, Orange Julius, Three Gaps, and Ilefsa, My Heart in Minnesota, Victoria's Secret, only in Minnesota, Forever 21, all fronted with riot gates, oddly like they had in Korea when demonstrations were commonplace. He saw no one as he strode past Nickelodeon Universe, manic characters frozen in midair, roller coasters eerily stilled on their tracks. Door 12-003 was a dark storefront, barred gate also in place, across from a gaudy mega restaurant, the Rainforest Cafe. Through the ambient light, he spied a single counter like the check-in at an airline's gate. Next to the counter, the letters A-T-M glowed. He rattled the gate and called, hello. From behind the counter, a dark-haired young woman detached from the gloom and motioned for him to go down the side hall where there was a small back door to the store. You're late, she said, exasperated. You know it's Black Friday, right? In the very back of the place was a small storeroom, its shelves piled with inventory. In the middle, on a folding table, a woman lay naked from the waist down in lithotomy position, her head propped up with one hand so she could check her phone. Young Mon tried not to stare. Hi, she chirped from the table. 
Oh, hello, Youngman said. Nice to see you. This is Jenny, our standardized customer. They get one free treatment for volunteering. Why do we need a standardized patient? He asked. True, normally Maude administered the flu vaccines, but intramuscular injection was something he could hardly forget how to do. You have run a laser defolliculator number two before? She said with surprise. No, said young Mon. Now they were using lasers for vaccines? She handed him a white coat that said, Sanis, mall-based medicine on the pocket. It's $10 a day to rent. I have one back at home, he said. Paying for a coat? Consistency across the brand, she said. We really have to hurry. Young Mon sighed as she left to go make a copy of his credit card. When the trader was gone, Young Mon didn't know where to put his eyes. So he picked up a brochure from a pile. Make mine medical, grand opening. Specialized medical retail puts the treat back into treatments, speedy dialysis, in and out chemo, USA cancer care, depilation nation, four eyes LASIK and vision testing, quick view MRI imaging, Barry's bariatric, now with Barry Jr.'s lap bands, Dome Depot, neurology and psychopharmaceuticals, faster than the ER, vaccines are us. Keep this, it's your only receipt. White coat deposit plus $500 incidentals at Depilation Nation. Depilation Nation, he said, looking up. We really need to start your training. The store opens, she checked her gadgety Santa's watch, in 15 minutes. Young Mon wanted to correct her gently. I'm actually supposed to be administering vaccines at Vaccines Are Us. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Not according to your ID. Welcome to Depilation Nation, where unwanted hair comes to die. A Sanus medical retail outlet. Laser, mustache, pubic hair depilation is less painful than waxing or tweezing. No annoying stubble. Cleaner skin with less chance of infection. Physician administered for highest safety standards. Perfect smoothness and permanent results. Asterisk. Financing available. Double asterisk. Your results may vary. OBGYNs work here, she said in her accented voice. I don't mean to sound flippant, he said. The depilation is even less of a medical procedure than vaccines. This is the exclusive FDA-approved machine for pubic hair depilation, and it requires a doctor to operate it. Pubic hair? Why would anyone want to depilate that? It is an elective health therapeutic. Young Mon wanted to clutch his head. Health? Pubic hair cushioned and protected the sensitive skin of the area. Depilation was unhealthy for it. Folliculitis. Various infections. How did he end up in this absurd situation? Yes, it was Einstein. Doctors shouldn't disease monger, he said. Pubic hair is not a pathology and should be left alone. Here's your coat back. He could sit at some cafe somewhere and have a pretzel until the day was done. You can't leave, she said. It's Black Friday. Next. We'll hear from Dana Spiata, the author of five novels, Wayward, a New York Times critic's top book of the year, Innocence and Others, winner of the St. Francis College Literary Prize and a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, Stone Arabia, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, Eat the Document, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the American Academy's Rosenthal Foundation Award, and Lightning Field, a New York Times notable book. Here is Dana Spiata. 
As Marie just described that the book took her 18 years to write, and what I read in an interview with you is that it started out centered on the young Dr. Einstein Quack and was a satire of medicine under capitalism, but then Einstein's old father, a minor figure in the first version of the book, became more interesting to her. This was an important revelation, choosing to make the minor character the main character. As a novelist, I'm very interested in form and how it makes meaning for the reader, how all the disparate parts connect to make the whole. What floored me about The Evening Hero is its unusual scope. It is multiple books at once, a social novel about the medical industrial complex, or as Marie puts it, private equities, quiet infiltration of healthcare, but also a satire of startup tech broism, a historical novel about Korea, a family saga, an immigrant story, and a portrait of a complex marriage. It ranges from hilariously comic to powerfully moving. How all of these elements combine is intellectually and emotionally satisfying. Marie holds it all together by making Young Man Kwok, the older doctor, the through line. Let me touch on some of the books that live within the book. The social novel slash satire, Marie just read from one of the funniest sections, but like all good comedy, it has real bite. The satire works because it takes our contemporary condition and intensifies it just enough to show us the direction we are heading in. I laughed at the absurdity of her send-ups, her portmanteaus, and puns. I'm going to have real trouble saying these. Retail a scene, doctorpreneurs, the hospital at the Mall of America. Marie's ear for startup tech speak, medical jargon, and beauty wellness culture is unmatched, but stays close enough to have a real traction on our current moment. Just this week, I received an email from Amazon. Amazon Clinic, quote, find treatment for common health concerns with Amazon Clinic, no visits or video calls needed. What could go wrong? So this is barely exaggerated. It cuts and it feels real prescient. A historical novel about halfway into the book. It jumps back to 1949 and Youngman's childhood in Korea in a small village right near the 38th parallel. I love the surprise of the timeline jump. It follows an emotional rather than chronological order. The extremely local scale from an innocent child's perspective makes it masterful. The world is rendered with such lyricism, full of flesh detail about the quotidian beauty of their family life. And then it is unstinting in depicting the trauma that unfolds as the war rages around them. The losses are devastating, but Marie also manages to give a genuine sense of how someone endures and goes on to a new life with all the legacy and regret of that experience carried with them coloring all that follows. Historical fiction at its best gives you something a conventional history doesn't. It locates the history in a personal narrative in a particular person. By focusing on the experience of the war for this one Korean family, it offers a counter narrative to the American perspective of the war, the portrait of a marriage. I love Marie for putting this ambiguous and long marriage of two old people at the center of her book. It seems at first they are living separate lives and that it is one-sided, but as the book unfolds, we come to understand their deep connection and respect for each other. Youngman's wife says at one point, quote, I think embracing and remaking what people dismiss as past its time is quite revolutionary. I I think this also describes how she views her husband, and it goes back to the arrangement of the book of making the minor dismissed character the main character, the hero. The anchor of the novel is Yanman Kwok. He is flawed, he has made mistakes, but he is quietly and thoroughly a good person. We know because we are allowed to see his whole life from his perspective, from childhood to old age. It reminded me that of all the powers of fiction, one of the most profound 
is showing the arc of a specific life in all its poignancy, particularly the arc of a life often unreported. This brings to mind the famous closing lines of Middlemarch, but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Next, we'll hear from Denise Cruz, who writes and teaches about gender and sexuality in national and transnational cultures in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She uses spatial and geographic frameworks from the Trans-Pacific to the regional to the global south to examine previously unstudied archives. Here is Denise Cruz. My remarks tonight are framed not only by my reaction to the novel as a reader, but also in this context of scholarship on Asian American literature. I taught this book last Friday in my seminar on the Asian American novel, so I also want to note that these comments were inspired by and reflect my students. This novel brilliantly takes up and departs from our expectations of what an Asian American novel might be. Lee has said in a marvelous interview with Jimin Han, I think that, quote, everyone expects Asian American literature to be the same, but we're actually people writing in different styles. To expand upon this comment, I think that if one were to catalog some of the usual assumptions about what Asian American literature is quote unquote about, one might assume the following five thematic clusters. One, immigration, especially from a site in Asia to a new location in the United States. Two, intergenerational conflict between parents who have immigrated and their children. Three, war, violence, and trauma and their effects on the diaspora. Four, labor and capitalism. Five, identity and community, especially in the context of racism and exclusion or amid assumptions that Asian Americans are model minorities. Now, Lee's novel does examine these clusters, but also extends beyond them. As you've heard, the novel manages to be multiple books at once. It is a searing, deeply funny and dark satire of a moment in which bodies and lives are devalued in the medical system that is governed by capitalism. It is a sweeping epic portrayal of Korean communities, war, and trans-Pacific history. It is also an intimate portrait of an elderly man and his relationship to his family. Lee's skill as a novelist is that these usual subjects are explored not only through the content of the novel, but also in its style, in the finely, carefully drawn characters, the closeness of the narration, the novel's playfulness in terms of genre. So, alongside these usual thematic clusters, I will gesture towards, in four minutes, how we might read the novel through an additional set of literary terms. First, structure. Second, character and narration. And third, place and time. Structure. Lee has noted that one of the inspirations for the book was George Eliot's 1870s novel, Middlemarch, a study in provincial life, a book she describes as having an almost religious feeling about. Eliot, in writing Middlemarch, famously decided to combine two separate novels. That novel is, as my colleague Nick Dames has noted, a novel not only of this small town, but also of middles and failures. It is a book that, like Lee's, resists structural containment. In a way, Lee's novel is, I think, a meditation on novels and their structure. This novel, as we've heard, proceeds in five books, and while these books are carefully connected, part of a larger whole, they are also intentionally disparate. This division is fitting in a context in which borders and divisions were declared and imposed upon populations in Korea, not only in the context of the 38th parallel, but also in the overlap of multiple empires character and narration. In describing her love of Middlemarch, Lee notes that it was, quote, mind-boggling how something could be so serious 
so accurate and so funny and character driven. This is an apt description of the evening hero. I think that many readers might expect an Asian American feminist to write a novel centered on the experience of mothers and daughters. Lee's novel instead primarily focuses on Young Man Kwok, MD. Young Man, the novel tells us, translates to evening hero. But it, of course, also sounds in English like young man. Phonetically, this playfulness, young man, is at odds with the character as we encounter him for much of the novel, an older man who reflects on his life and the choices he's made. Lee's treatment of young man is generous, empathetic, a stylistic choice that marks her recounting of how he fails, makes mistakes, has regrets, is often not his best self. Lee draws us into this character in part through narration that is incredibly close and intimate, so close that third-person narration often feels like first-person. In contrast, we see a feminist portrayal of women and their complexity through young men's eyes, women who don't fulfill expectations like his mother or the fantastic young eye his wife, smart, competent, a better doctor than he is. And last place in time. Lee's book opens in Horse's Breath, Minnesota, and with this setting shifts us from cities like New York or San Francisco to a rural community. This is though not the only site in the novel, which also takes us from South Korea to settings that US readers might not usually encounter in the pages of fiction. Water Project Village, the exchange market zone, North Korea. And Lee's attention to these settings, regionless literature, after all, has long been attuned to the particularities of place. She calls attention to overlaps of empire, the messiness of borders drawn in treaties that separate South versus North, the legacies of Japanese empire, U.S. militarization and communism, the strategies of survival and extreme poverty. Through detailed attention, Lee shows us that Korea was not a proxy war. She expands before and after the usual temporal boundaries of 1950 to 53, traditionally seen from U.S. perspective as the temporal beginning and end of the war. I don't have to tell you exactly how Lee takes us to these sites and places because I don't want to give it away, but I can tell you that she takes us to the before, during, and after through flashbacks, glimpses of memory, and stylistically these shifts often happen seamlessly, think Toni Morrison's Rememory and Beloved. They're connected to what Francis described, what in Korean is described as Han, grief, lack of resolution, anger and sorrow, which Sandra Kim has called, quote, an affect that encapsulates the grief of historical memory. The skill with each of these principles, structure, character and narration, place and time is extraordinary. It's through these elements that she offers us another kind of revelation, fleeting glimpses of kindness, recognition, and care amid horrible circumstances and conditions over the course of decades. Characters make decisions and sometimes they can't be carefully planned. More often they happen quickly. Characters fail each other, themselves, again and again, but they also find ways to survive and find intimate connection. What holds this novel made up of multiples together is perhaps this hope that amid our shared place and time, one that is also filled with grief and mourning, but that has prompted unexpected and necessary ways of imagining life for ourselves and for each other. Lastly, we'll hear from Francis Cha, the author of the novel, If I Had Your Face, which was named one of the best books of the year by Time Magazine, NPR, BBC, and Esquire, among other publications, and is being translated into 11 languages. She received her MFA in fiction from Columbia University, where she received a Dean's Fellowship. Here is Frances Cha. Coming from the younger generation, even within Korea and certainly among Korean Americans, where their language barrier adds to the communication breakdown between generations, I think the part of this really extraordinary multi-novels in one that 
struck me the most was the tragedy of all this expectation built into Youngman's story and the expectation of Han. Han is a Korean concept, uh, all the resentment and rage and repression that is kind of built up over time that manifests in the form of hope and dreams for the next generation in Einstein, coming from the very immature daughter-in-law of this extraordinary person who has lived through war, has endured unspeakable tragedy, and has persevered and built a life, and only to be misunderstood by the next generation as being foolish um, and misguided and out of date. I resented this. But at the same time, I really marveled at what fiction can accomplish making me see what my husband has tried to explain to me so many times in real life, I really understood through this novel. And I spent the weekend with him. We just moved. And it was very interesting to see my father-in-law just completely persevering. He is 83 years old, but he just to 12 hours straight of unpacking with, I would say, almost no bathroom breaks. And as I was rereading this book, I thought of the extraordinary repression of any kind of emotion of endurance that Jungman has embedded into his character. And in, in our class every week here at Columbia, we talk in, in workshop about the origin damage and origin trauma of characters. And this, I find it very interesting that Marie opens the book and we see him on the most helpless day of his life. We have seen him work so hard and that is completely irrelevant and he has been reduced to a very silent and mute figure as his entire hospital is closed down. And when he operates with such grace and in the face of microaggressions, not only from colleagues, but within his town who, you know, they do not welcome people who look different. And they certainly make vocalize that distaste for outsiders. And I again saw this in my father-in-law this weekend when I see this very complicated, fearsome man that I, I have complicated feelings about. But in the face meeting the neighbors, he was reduced to this smiling, nodding, almost mute figure. And then you go back through young man's history, what he's lived through, the murders that he's witnessed, the unspeakable tragedy of war. And he is not only capable of persevering through that, but capable of great love for his wife, a love that causes him an extreme act of betrayal of his own family, which is un unspeakable. It carries with him. It leaves such scar tissue that he cannot shake it off. And all of that encapsulates in this uh, person who cannot communicate everything he's lived through with his son, who he loves so much. That coupled with that, I was actually born in Minnesota. My parents, what the minute they stepped off the plane from Korea, were greeted by this Korean doctor, the same generation as Jungman. And the fact that getting set up in their new life in America, someone who I can really... <laughs> see now who has only lived as a mythical figure in my family history. It was such a very bewildering experience for me personally. I don't know. How. <laughs> this is like for other readers who don't have such many, many cultural connections to the book. But I, I do think that from just as a work of fiction, encapsulating all these multiverses in one is such a remarkable achievement. Once again, here is Marie Mayung O'Kay Lee. 
Before we get into our conversation, I found this in my desk and it is dated 5304. And it wow. is the ur text of when I was trying to mush Middlemarch into this weird idea that I had. And you will see it is very different. <laughs> it says tragic novel, Korean American OB saves woman having a VBAC, this is vaginal birth after a cesarean by hysterectomy. She's only 24, has three kids. She's super religious and she sues him based on the quote unquote barbarous tendencies of Asians and he loses. So this was Einstein. And then um, it just said, Einstein never felt particularly welcome in Minnesota. <laughs> So this is just very weird. I can't believe, and it has a date. So I literally, it literally was 18 years ago. And then there's just all this very weird, rather random things. But then I was really, I was realizing too, there's another little quote that I written to myself that I hoped I could somehow infuse into the book. This is the process whereby pain of the past in its pastness may be converted into the future tense of joy. It's Robert Penn Warren. And I think part of what we were discussing about the, you know, I actually ended up like wanting to write a funny book about genocide because <laughs> how else can you write about genocide if there's not some like yin yang, like light to it. And so that, that has been kind of my ongoing process with this. And one of the main parts when it went from Einstein, you know, because I was sort of like, you know, in my egotistical way, I went to do a big novel of ideas and about capitalism, and, you know, because I majored in economics or whatever. And then also there are certain pressures because one of the reasons the Asian American Writers Workshop was formed was because we kind of wanted to push back by the sort of monolithic hegemony of the Joy Luck Club, which became the text that everything had to be like. It had to be like your grandma and da da da. And so when we tried to get out of that, that's what we had formed in a way. So. I always kind of feel like I don't want to write a novel about an immigrant because that, you know what I mean? I just always had this sort of egotistical, like I'm going to write a, like a big American novel. But I think the sad thing is the reason that this shifted so much was in 2016 with the election. And it's not as if, you know, people who are Asian American didn't know like this kind of violence existed. It's, it's more like it now people are, were believing us a little more. It was just seeing in my own small town, somebody posting a bumper sticker. This is when Trump had just been elected and he was all into, we're going to bomb North Korea. And so Someone actually posted a bumper sticker that said every day 150 species of animal go extinct and North Korean should be next. And it just made me feel like because my father was, was the anesthesiologist in the town and in that kind of position, he's he's had hands on every single person in the town who ever grew up there. And to think that and, and for a while too, my father was also undocumented. So to hear that kind of rhetoric calling for genocide for someone like my father and then Francis, you also mentioned how suddenly like your fearsome father-in-law is suddenly just becomes this kind of quiet man. And this is very much what I saw with my father because I think most people didn't realize my father had such an amazing career. He was present. He was the anesthesiologist at one of the first successful open heart surgeries that was done by someone named C. Walton Lily High. So my father actually changed medical history in this country, but because of the very anti-Asian immigration laws, his story is slightly different than Youngman's, but that's why we ended up in Northern Minnesota because he had to go to a place that was so desperate for doctor that it was kind of this mutual desperation that if no American born person wants it, the immigrant always gets it done. 
And so that just sort of became the motivating principle. I was hoping to keep that sort of like a very warm and super funny tone in Middlemarch. And I don't know if you remember, there is actually like a kind of doctor subplot where the guy tries to do the right thing and he kind of ends up accidentally killing someone. So I was trying to kind of keep that along with just the very simple idea that, you know, Denise, as you were talking about, like with Asian American literature, like just he's this guy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And it's a novel. And that's just, I, I think that seems simple, but that was just like one of my goals. Like I wanted to have a character who is this guy. And there he is. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Marie Mayangoke Lee and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening to another season of the SLF Heyman Bookshelf. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Marie Mayangoke Lee. The title of her new book is The Evening Hero. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next season.